Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John 19. To start from 8, we'll be focused on more or less the second half of 11 through 16, but I'll start from 8. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we return to this passage that lays out for us this sham trial of our Savior by Pontius Pilate, the Roman praetor. Pilate, you will remember, is seeking to worm his way out of this, out of having anything to do with the death of Jesus. Yet the Jews continue to be unflinching in their call for him to die. Whether for sedition or blasphemy, one way or the other, they want him to die. Jesus, on the other hand, is not at all seeking to worm his way out of this situation. He is intent on completing the work his father had given him to do, which is to continue and culminate in his death on a tree. He was intent on being slain for the sin of the world as the Lamb of God. We focused last week on Jesus' statement about authority, so we covered the first half of verse 11 last time, and we pick up with the second half of verse 11 today. So in response to Pilate's outburst that he had power to release Jesus or crucify him, Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had had been given you from above. And then he says, for this reason... 
He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Those words were the last words Jesus spoke during his trial. The next words he, he speaks would be when he is hanging from the cross. Now, what does Jesus mean when he, when he follows up his statement about Pilate's authority with the words, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin? What does he mean and to whom is he referring? Well, who handed Jesus over to Pilate? He could be referring to Judas, who initiated this whole sordid business, right? He could be referring to Annas and Caiaphas, both of whom had seen Jesus that same night and had made a decision to refer him to Pilate. All three men are Jews, so in some sense, Jesus could be referring to the Jews as a whole many of whom are gathered outside the praetorium screaming, screaming for Jesus to be killed by crucifixion. And so what Jesus is saying is that the Jews who initiated this whole business, who have committed a worse sin than Pilate, committed a worse sin than Pilate, who was essentially, uh, Pilate was thrust into this position by the Jews and was being used by the Jews for their own ends. But how are the first clause and the second clauses related, right? You have authority given to you from God, therefore he who delivered to me, delivered me to you has greater sin. It's hard to see how the two clauses relate to one another. I think this is what our Lord is saying, saying Pilate, you are you are exercising the authority God has given you as ruler over this people, but the Jews, those who delivered me to you, have no such authority. And so their actions are not motivated out of any sort of obligation, but simply out of hatred and envy. I think that's what's being said here. And, you know, and, and he... He implies, you know, and though you have authority, Pilate, they have knowledge and no authority. And a sin against knowledge is the worst sin. They know who I am and have called for me to be killed. You, though bestowed with the authority to do so, are ignorant of who I am. Hence all of your questions. And so honestly, I think both Pilate and the Jews are ignorant. That is what Peter says when he pins the crucifixion on the Jews, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. So he brings together both the Jews and, and the Romans in that. So there's a kind of ignorance that Pilate exhibits and a worse kind of ignorance that the Jews exhibit. They had the oracles of God. They had every advantage. And they, even with knowledge of the Messiah, with examples of those who hoped in him, call for his death. Pilate was, had lawful authority, but acted in ignorance. The Jews did not have lawful authority and acted with wicked suppression of what they knew to be true, which is a worse kind of ignorance. Now, Calvin, 
Calvin has a different take on the meaning of the phrase we are considering. He makes mention of the view I've already outlined, but then says this. Listen to what he says. I think that this circumstance renders the guilt of the Jews more heinous and less excusable on another ground, that they constrain a divinely appointed government to comply with their lawless desires. They constrain a lawful authority like Pilate to do wickedness. For it is a monstrous sacrilege to pervert a holy ordinance of God for promoting any wickedness. The robber, listen to this, who with his own hand cuts the throat of a wretched passenger is justly held in abhorrence. But he who under the form of a judicial trial puts to death an innocent man is more wicked. In other words, what makes the sin of the Jews so heinous is not so much that they sin against knowledge, but that they, through their angry insistence, direct and cause the authority God has put in place, the Pilate and the Romans, to do injustice, to do wickedness. What's an analogy that would help make sense of this? Well, perhaps this one. We all agree that it is a sin for a woman to murder her baby in the womb. Aye. (laughs) But the worst sin is the hordes of feminists who insist the government must codify Roe and make the murder of babies in the womb available and commonplace. Why? Because the ruling authorities which are given by God are to promote what is good and punish what is evil. So insisting that the governing authorities enshrine injustice is a sin that proliferates evil. Pilate crucified Jesus, but it was the Jews who insisted that he pervert Pilate's God-given authority and use it for evil. Pilate sinned, even as a woman who hires somebody to kill her unborn baby sins, but the Jews' insistence that he pervert his authority to unjust ends to kill Jesus, even as Planned Parenthood and its ghouls insist that the U.S. government pervert their authority to unjust ends, that is the worst sin. It is a greater sin, and yes... Based upon this passage, there are gradations of sin. But even the least of which is enough to condemn a man to hell if he is not forgiven by God. I mean, this really is an astonishing application in this passage, isn't it? That Pilate's sin was not as great as the sin of the Jews in perverting justice, in coercing God-given authority to sin. Pilate's compliance is the fault of the Jews' hatred and insistence and is the lesser sin. The sin of an individual is terrible. Abortion is terrible. But you know what is worse? The sin of provoking authority to do evil. (laughs) Women who commit abortion are committing a lesser sin than the powerful lobbyists who have so intensely insisted that babies in the womb should not be protected under the law. Powerful lobbying organizations that force the God-given authorities to do evil and protect evil and to praise what is evil and condemn what is good are doubly wicked. 
There are very few sins like the sin of coercing authorities to do evil. The effects of that kind of advocacy leads individuals to sin and for the entire culture to be defiled. Authority, you see, is important to God because God is the Father from whom every Father in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, this becomes so clear when we look at what happens next in this passage. How does Pilate respond to the statement of Jesus? Amazingly, he gets what Jesus says about authority, and he, quote, made efforts to release him. He, in a sense, wants to do what is right. He wants to do what is right. He's seeking, he's looking for ways to get out of this, to to release Jesus. And he would have done what is right, save for his fear of men, his fear of the Jews. It appears clear, though, that instead of taking the just action of releasing Jesus, Pilate again went out to tell the Jews that he was going to do so. And so they harp against him when he arrives out to the crowds again and says, I'm going to release him. And they harp against him even more and in a new direction, a very new and awful direction. They say, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. It's a threat. It's a threat. If you don't do this, we're going to send a delegation to Tiberius Caesar Augustus and tell him you are supporting his rivals. Now, they're being quite nasty, aren't they? They they hit Pilate right where it hurts. They bring up Caesar and return to the accusation, the false accusation that Jesus is a rabble-rousing seditionist a self-designated king who wants to, you know, usurp the rule of the Romans. They say that those who claim to be a king are, by that very claim, undermining the authority of Caesar. So here they are coercing authority. They are perverting authority while making a claim to upholding authority. Isn't that twisted? They're subverting authority by making a claim to be upholding authority. Their actions are horrible and double-minded. And they know that Pilate is a man who fears men. They've seen him waffle back and forth this whole time. It's clear he would rather be complicit in Jesus' murder than be dragged before Caesar to answer charges that he was no friend of Caesar. There was no winning in that courtroom. Pilate is crumbling. Pilate is crumbling in the face of their threats, isn't he? He fears man and will stoop to ordering Jesus' execution. The Jews are manipulating his authority and they will threaten whatever they need to threaten to get him to use his authority for evil. It's it's quite a spectacle, isn't it? The pride of man 
now Jews and Pilate, the pride of man, the Romans swirling around the silent Son of God. The wickedness of man and the, and the you know, impure motives and the double-mindedness raging around the silent Son of God. Who's there to die for the sins of the world. I mean, what humiliation for Jesus. What astonishing humility. All, all for you. All for you, brothers and sisters. All so that you might be welcomed into the presence of his Father without spot or wrinkle, without any blemish, clothed in righteousness. All for you. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. That's Jesus. That's Jesus there now focused on you. That's what holds him there in silence. That's what holds him there to to see these fools before him arguing about who has authority over him. And he's he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He cast the stars into space. He he formed the nebula. And they're arguing about who's going to get him. Pilate is now done fighting. He's done. He takes a deep breath and he's done fighting and he gives in to the mob. He silences his conscience and moves forward in his judgment. He returns to the inner court of the praetorium and he brings out Jesus now out to the outer court where the Jews can now see him. Then much of the Jews, much to the Jews' delight, no doubt, Pilate sits down on the judgment seat of Lithostratos. Or in English, the pavement. <laughs> Sounds so much better in the Greek. <laughs> Lithostratos. This was a paved area outside the court just next to the praetorium. The Jews called it Gabbatha, which means the rounded height. So it's just got a little bit of height. It's a judgment seat on there. Here's Pilate taking the judgment seat on that elevated ground, about to bring to an end the sham trial, about to pronounce a judgment on the very Son of God. And so significant is this moment that John records the day and the very hour that it took place. It's Friday morning, the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was sometime between 6 and 9 in the morning. It's early, and a lot has already taken place on that day. Now, Pilate, undoubtedly feeling burned by the Jews and, and, and angry, provokes them again by proclaiming before them, Behold your king. Behold your king. He's angry about the situation he has been put in, and to vent himself, he flings out that statement. Or perhaps he says it in the same way that he said, Behold the man. 
Perhaps he's, again, appealing to them with the rather pathetic spectacle of, of their bleeding, silent king. Regardless, the statement is provocative to the Jews and, and, and they, they return fire. What do they say? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Just the whole crowd's like, crucify, crucify, away with him. Get rid of this man. Pilate again provokes them again and appeals to them, shall I crucify your king? Oh, man. And chief priests now answer for the people. Notice that. The chief priests answer for the people with these horrible words. Do you realize the depth of the depravity in these words? We have no king but Caesar. Oh, it should cause chills. The Jews say we have no king but Caesar. Now let me read to you four quotes from four different commentaries about this. And I'm sharing these with you because I want you to see how people talk about this moment in history. Ryle says, These memorable words inflicted indelible grace on the disgrace, excuse me, these memorable words inflicted indelible disgrace on the leaders of the Jews forever as a fallen, blinded, God-forsaken, God-forsaken and apostate nation. Ketty says, the Jews crossed the line with the living God. They professed loyalty to the emperor of the world and rejected Jesus. Calvin says, this is a display of shocking madness that the priests, who ought to have been well acquainted with the law, reject Christ, in whom the salvation of the people was wholly contained, on whom all the promises depended, and on whom the whole of their religion was founded. And indeed, by rejecting Christ, they deprive themselves of the grace of God and of every blessing. Henry. Henry says this, they have no king but Caesar and never have they had another to this day, but have been many days without a king and without a prince, Hosea 3, 4. That is without any of their own and the kings of the nations have ruled over them. Since they will have no king but Caesar, so shall their doom be, themselves have decided it. And then Edersheim, listen to this. With this cry, Judaism was, in the person of its representative, guilty of denial of God, of blasphemy, of apostasy. It committed suicide. And ever since has its dead body been carried in show from land to land and from century to century to be dead and to remain dead till he come a second time who is the resurrection and the life. Now, why bringing in all these comments? I want you to understand just how terrible the action of the chief priests and the Jews is now in appealing to Caesar against Jesus. And remind you, within the lifetime of many of those witnesses that are there seeing these events, 
that the Romans would absolutely destroy Jerusalem and definitely the temple. Destroyed within, within two generations. A.D. 70, the Roman armies would destroy the temple and shed the blood of many Jews. God's judgment came through the means of his sword, the Roman army. This, this, this point is the apostasy of the Jews in its full flower. We have no king but Caesar. Right? I mean, it does harken back to when, when Samuel, you know, they want a king and Samuel's like, you know, I don't know about that. And, and God says, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. But now this is, I mean, Jesus in the flesh is before them. The Son of God is before them. And now they're like, we have no king but Caesar. Was Caesar a pleasant man? You read about the Roman emperors? He was not righteous. And so the, 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 the Jews... The Jews have been rejected. The Jews have been rejected. They committed suicide. The Jews have been rejected. And yet, and yet, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Romans 11. May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, by the rejection of the Jews, by the transgression of the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To make them jealous. <laughs> Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. 
Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But, now stick with me here. I want to read through this whole chapter because it's on this question of the Jews. right? But if some of the branches were broken off, the Jewish branches are broken off, natural branches, and you... Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear... For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, Gentiles. Don't be arrogant. What happened to the Jews can happen to you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to whom, to those who fell severity, but to, God, but to you God's kindness If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Oh, the mercy of God. The incredible mercy of God. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Do you understand what the apostle Paul is saying there? Do you understand what he's saying? Do you understand the amazing mercy of God in this? I mean, the Jews are calling for Caesar and they're apostate. They've been broken off. They're hard, hard of heart. And then God says, yeah, but there will come a point when when they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before his return at some point, the Jews will convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are still hard right now. And that's because the fullness of the Gentiles has not come in. But when that happens, those Jews will be shown mercy. And they will call out that their one king is Jesus Christ. It's no longer Caesar or Netanyahu. They will call out for their one king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be saved. They'll be saved by grace through faith. 
just as anybody else was. They won't have some special red heifer or temple building they have to do. No, it'll just be by grace through faith, as it has been down through the ages. So the mercy of God, the mercy of God. I mean, think of that. The conversion of the Jews before Christ's return does not mean we are Zionists or that we pin the hopes of Christ's return on some sort of nation state in the Middle East. Dispensationalists, much of American evangelicals, misread much of Scripture and make too much out of the reconstruction of the temple and the physical, political entity of Israel. No, we simply look for the conversion and faith of ethnic Jews. A revival, we'll call it, among Jews before Christ's return. So then verse 16. So then they handed him, so he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate has now given into this bloodthirsty mob, even against his conscience, he has determined that he cannot release Jesus if he wants peace in the realm. So the scriptures say he handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Who's the them? Who's he talking about? This refers to the Jews and specifically to the chief priests. Pilate is now giving them permission to execute Jesus. Not that the chief priests took him into their possession and pounded the nails into his his wrists and his legs, right? No, the Romans did that, but it was the will of the chief priests that those Romans were now enacting. And they waste no time. They take Jesus straight away to execute him, lest Pilate change his mind. But do not forget, dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is now delivered over for our offenses. He is a He is led like a sheep to be slaughtered because of our transgressions. We have focused much on Pilate's weaknesses and the apostasy of the Jews, but the purpose of Jesus going to the cross was so that you might have a substitute. The purpose of Jesus dying was so that our sins would be punished in him. So remember the angel of the Lord? Revealing to Joseph what Jesus would accomplish. Remember what he said? She, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So though we have focused on everybody surrounding Jesus, remember that at this point Jesus had you in mind, dear brothers and sisters. He stands silent before his accusers because he faithfully is obeying his father. So that on that cross, he would bear the wrath of God. You're deserving. Rest in that knowledge. Rest in that knowledge, dear brothers and sisters. Your sins are forgiven because of Christ's death. He is, Jesus is not some sort of victim here in these circumstances. No, he boldly and faithfully endured all this humiliation because he desired to make a way possible for you to live where he now reigns. It's glorious. That's that's the hope that wakes you up in the morning, isn't it? It's the hope that helps you persevere through all of the, the trials and the suffering of this life. Isn't it? It's the hope that makes you take on way more responsibility than you should ever bear. 
And it's the hope that, that allows you to forgive those who have sinned against you, even, you know, as they forgive us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died for our sins. Thank you that he was silent before his accusers so that he would, he would be hung on the tree, cursed for us, cursed because of us, cursed, cursed in our place. Lord, thank you that we have righteousness now through him. What glory, what glory, Father, you've given to us in your Son. Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.